This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Good evening and welcome to the UC San Diego Center for Healthy Aging's monthly public lecture. Uh, for those of you I haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Danielle Glorioso, and I'm the executive director for the Center for Healthy Aging and the Stein Institute for Research on Aging. I'm so delighted to see all of you here tonight for Dr. Allison Moore's talk. Um, for those of you who are new to us, the Center for Healthy Aging focuses on advancing lifelong health and well-being through research, training, and community outreach. So this public lecture series is an example of the community outreach work that we, that we do at the Stein Institute and the Center. Um, for those of you who have been coming for many, many years, you know that this series has been sponsored free to the public for well over 30 years now. Uh, so we are so fortunate. Uh, the idea in mind is to get exciting advances that are happening in aging here at UC San Diego out to the community so you can learn more about what's happening in aging uh, through our, our lecturers. Um, as you know, it's been free for all of these years, so we'd like to thank all of you for supporting these events because they're, they're supported entirely through donations. So all of these years, your donations have been supporting this wonderful event, so I'd like to thank all of you. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the work we're doing or see past lectures online, you can go to our website at aging.ucsd.edu. Uh, so it's my great honor and privilege to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Allison Moore. She is chief of the Division of Geriatrics here at UC San Diego and a professor of medicine in the Department of Medicine here at UC School of Medicine. She's a nationally recognized physician, scientist, and educator in her field, and her research over the past 20 years has focused on the epidemiology and health-related effects of alcohol and other substances among diverse populations, including older adults. Please join me in giving a warm welcome for Dr. Allison Moore. Thank you, Danielle. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, Danielle also said I could um, say a few words about our um, clinical programs here in geriatric medicine. So um, as she said, I came here pretty recently, and we're in the growth phase for our program, and I want to tell you a little bit about the programs we have within geriatrics. First, I have no conflicts of interest to report. Next, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but I wanted to start off with a definition of what geriatrics is. So it is most simply health care for older adults. And the field of geriatrics aims to promote health by preventing and treating diseases and disabilities in older adults, or better yet, preventing them at all. Uh, geriatricians focus on maintaining and or improving functional independence in performing daily activities. So one of the things that separates us from our brethren who aren't trained in geriatrics is really this focus on function. It's sort of how we, as one of my colleagues, Kai Wen, says, geriatrics is about the F word, the F word meeting function. Um, so who benefits the most from care by geriatrician? It's really the old, old. So people 80 and older are the ones who do benefit the most because of the um, they are more likely to have um, frailty or be in, have some functional decline, which means not being able to do the activities they used to be able to do. Um, they often have multiple diagnoses or complex medical conditions, which we are well equipped to um, address and treat. And they have um, often geriatric syndrome. So that's some of these things we see more commonly in older people, which have multiple causes in which a geriatrician is particularly uh, well-equipped to um, figure out what's going on and how to address it. So things like uh, dementia, falls, polypharmacy. We also are quite good at advanced care planning, end-of-life um, decisions and management. Um, so it's all part of what we do as geriatricians. These are the physicians we have in our group. So again, we're a small population. Um, we'll be growing. Um, in the center top is Kai Wen. He's our clinical services chief, and he works in so these. Pro the, the, the information underneath is where we practice primarily in our clinical land. So Kai works at both the Medicine for Seniors, which is our clinic we've had for a number of years here, and a brand new post-acute care program I'll talk about in the next slide. Um, Dr. Hyra Romero has been here the longest of all of us in the geriatrics group here now. Um, he works for the Medicine for Seniors program and the Mark Clinic. I'll talk about that also. 
Uh, Rupali Gupta is our second most senior faculty member, and she's head of our fellowship program and um, kind of head of our education component. Uh, Veronica Gonzalez is a newest, our newest, uh, one of our two new hires this year. She finished her fellowship with us last year and just joined our faculty, now practices in our uh, Medicine for Seniors clinic um, solely. Um, and then Dr. Ian Neal, who um, completed his residency here at UC San Diego in internal medicine, then completed his fellowship. And now he works at the post-acute care program and in another longstanding program we've had, um, the Senior Behavioral Health um, Program in Hillcrest, where we provide medical consultation. So these are our cl- current clinical services, and there's a handout in the, um, that's in the front that um, also talks about mostly this med- Medicine for Seniors program we have. Um, so we have five of us see patients there, 65 and up, and um, these are information for you where we are, our phone numbers. Um, that second program is the Memory Aging and Resilience Clinic. This has been around for a long time. It used to be called SoCare. And in this program, they perform comprehensive evaluation for um, adults with memory concerns. And that's staffed by a geriatric psychiatrist, a neuropsychologist, a geriatrician, and social worker. And they provide individual care plans and encourage family involvement in the assessment and plan. Uh, Senior Behavioral Health, located in Hillcrest in the hospital, is an inpatient program for individuals with a psychiatric uh, diagnosis. Um, They're admitted to the psychiatry unit. That's what it is. And we co-manage them with um, geriatric psychiatrists um, like Dr. Jeste and Dr. Sewell. Um, We have a brand-new post-acute care program that started in uh, July. And what that is is patients who are discharged from our hospitals who go to um, any one of 11 facilities that um, UCSD has a partnership with are cared for by a geriatrician. And then um, the Gary and Mary West Senior Emergency Care Unit is also opened in this fall, and it now is a virtual place, but eventually will be a physical location, um, which provides specialized care and resources for older adults. So it's a, it's a geriatrics emergency department. Um, so that's an exciting new development here that we're um, in, engaged in. And then we have some websites. We have our geriatrics.ucsd.edu website that talks more about our program in the Division of Geriatrics. And then um, the, the primary care portion, um, the Medicine for Seniors site, is the second link here. All right, so now we're going to talk to them about the main purpose of this. Uh, you're inviting me here tonight. Okay. So um, this um, is a picture of Homer Simpson, um, and he says, to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. Um, I'm going to talk about the um, truth behind this statement in this talk. So I'd like to start off all of my presentations on this topic with this picture. Um, So it it is, what is a drink? My doctor said, only one glass of alcohol a day. I can live with that. And it's really to make the point that we need to make sure we are talking about the same thing. We're asking our patients or telling our physicians how much alcohol we consume. It's, it's, a drink a day doesn't really help us enough. We need to be more precise. So these are standard drink equivalents in the United States. So a drink is defined in the U.S. as 14 grams of absolute ethanol. This definition does vary by country. In Australia, a drink is 10 grams of absolute ethanol. In Japan, it's almost 20. So it does vary by the country quite a bit, what they consider a drink, or a drink equivalent is what you hear a lot. So these are all drink equivalents. They all contain the same amount of alcohol. So 12 ounces of beer, ale, A shot or one and a half ounces of 80-proof spirits, gin, vodka, whiskey, tequila, rum. Um, A medium-sized glass of wine ranges from four to six ounces. You have about five glasses in your average bottle of wine. Um, A can of malt liquor is eight ounces. Um, typically sold in 7-Eleven as a three, like a 24-ounce single can, so that's three servings in a single can for like two bucks. Um, a glass of liqueur, a parity for fortified wine, is three to four ounces. So all of these have the same amount of alcohol. So these are U.S. guidelines for low-risk drinking, which are well-established now. Um, So as you can see here, they are for men under the age of 65. Um, The recommended drinking limits are no more than four drinks on any single day 
and no more than 14 drinks per week. And for women of all ages who aren't pregnant and men who are 65 and older, it is um, recommended guidelines are lower. So three or fewer drinks on any single day and no more than seven drinks per week. So why do these guidelines differ? Um, these are the main reasons. So women tend to have lower body size and reduced activity of an enzyme called gastric dehydrogenase. This enzyme metabolizes alcohol. And women and older adults tend to have a lower percentage of their body weight composed of water. Alcohol is a water-soluble substance. And so if they have lower um, total body water, if they're given a, a particular dose of alcohol, you get a higher blood alcohol level uh, for a given amount of alcohol intake. So the way I like to say it most simply is that if you give a 30-year-old a drink of alcohol, say a, uh, 12 ounces of beer, and you give an 80-year-old 12 ounces of beer, the 80-year-old is going to have a higher blood alcohol level, even if given the same amount of, the same amount of alcohol. Also, older adults have increased psychomotor effects from alcohol. By that, I mean they have more problems with uh, potential problems with confusion or problems with coordination, maybe an increased risk for falls. Um, and they also tend to have more other medical problems going on and take more medications, all of which complicates um, the use of alcohol. We'll go into more of this later in the talk. So now some data on alcohol consumption in the United States. So these data are, are more than you know, 15 years old, but they're still relevant today. 35% um, of all adults in the U.S. Uh, don't drink at all. 37% uh, always drink at those low-risk levels, that is the levels we talked about. 28% um, drink at high-risk or heavy levels. And um, you drink the most when you're young. So age 21 through 25, um, is the peak of alcohol consumption. So at this time, 76% of U.S. adults this age drink alcohol, including 80% of men and 73% of women. At age 65, about 50% still drink alcohol, including 55% of men and 37% of women. So really, at all ages, you see men drink more than um, do women. So I'm going to talk about the benefits of alcohol consumption uh, next, which is illustrated by this New Yorker cartoon. So he's sitting in his chair drinking um, what we presume is a pretty large glass of wine, talking on the old-fashioned phone, and he says, not much, just flushing out my arteries. So this is a, a list of conditions that may be prevented by low-risk alcohol use, and it's a pretty impressive list, including death. <laughs> Um, so the other things that alcohol and low-risk um, amounts can uh, reduce risk for is coronary heart disease, gallstones, ischemic stroke, was the which is the type of stroke you get if you have a blockage of an artery as compared to a bleed, um, congestive heart failure, diabetes, osteoporosis, dementia, and disability. So we'll talk more about these as we go through. These are some data slides just to show you some of what I'm, I've been um, talking about. So this is um, a slide to illustrate alcohol use and risk of death. So it was done in a large sample of older adults, more than 142,000. And I'm going to illustrate to you the death rate per 100,000 is on this axis, so higher is worse. And the amount of drinks per day is on this axis, so it goes from none, less than daily, and up. And the two different colored uh, lines are those who are at high risk for heart disease or coronary heart disease and those who are at low risk for coronary heart disease. So as you'd expect, the death rate is higher for those with high heart disease risk than for low heart disease risk. What's also notable here is that at about a drink a day or even less, more than none, you see an appreciable reduction in risk for death, much more marked amongst those with high heart disease risk. And then you see this, this risk for death really stays lower, even for pretty high amounts of alcohol consumption. Um, and those at low risk, you see really it's about a drink a day, it's the lowest, and then slowly rises. So again, some of the data which has been found again and again and again to show what is typically a U-shaped relation um, between alcohol consumption and um, health. 
This is another illustration of alcohol's really benefit to heart disease. So here we have um, relative risk for heart disease. Um, one is no different, is no is sort of average risk. Um, above this is higher risk than average, and this is less risk. So we want to be in this zone to be healthy. So this is alcohol consumption in grams per day. Remember, U.S. it's 14 grams as a single drink, so that's about here. So we see again that we see this reduction in, in risk for heart disease around the drinker even more for men a day. For women, we're seeing this gender effect where they, they get the benefit at a lower dose and they get worse at a lower dose too. So we, we like to keep them around a drink a day for women for this um, benefit. This is a different look at alcohol consumption. Um, it looks at drinking pattern. And this was study was done um, among men only. And it, it looked at drinking pattern and risk of heart attack. And so here we see uh, relative risk again um, for um, heart attacks. So that's sort of no different than average. And everything's better um, down here. And this is number of days per week alcohol is consumed. So five to seven days, three to four. And these different colored bars represent different amounts of drink per day. So less than 10 grams, 10 to 30, almost 30, 30 or more. And the thing you see here is that it really doesn't matter how much, how much, how much you drink. It really matters more how frequently you drink in terms of reducing your risk for heart attack. So regular frequency of drinking was the thing that really reduced the risk for heart attack in this sample of men. So to me, alcohol is like many other drugs that we take, and the benefit and the risk really depend on the amount and the, free, the dose and the frequency with which you take the, the drug. Um, moving to things that affect older adults, um, even more than younger, is dementia. So alcohol consumption and risk of a new diagnosis of dementia. Um, this is the cardiovascular health study. It was done only among people 65 and older. And here we have odds ratio. Again, higher is um, increased risk for dementia, and below one is reduced risk for dementia. Here's the average weekly number of drinks consumed, so more than uh, less, uh, uh, 14 or more, 7 to 13. These, this is the group of people who um, had quit drinking before the study started, and this is the group of people who quit drinking during the course of the study. And here we see that the average weekly number of drinks consumed that conferred the biggest benefit was about one to six drinks per week of alcohol consumption. You saw the stars represent statistically significant differences uh, compared to no drinking. And so low, little lower amounts than we saw in some of the other diseases we looked at. And the highest risk people, which we'll see again and again, are those who stop drinking. And it's presumed because of illness that people stop drinking, and that's certainly a marker for illness. Um, one study that I participated in is, is one described here. And um, in this study, we looked at um, development of disability among people age uh, 50 and older um, from drinkers compared to abstainers or non-drinkers. And we found that compared to abstainers, these low-risk drinkers who were in good or better health at baseline had approximately a 25% reduced risk for disability over a 10-year period. Um, so the proviso to be good or better health was important because we didn't see the same reduction in risk among people who weren't in good health to begin with. So all the studies that I've described to you thus far have really been what we call observational studies. That is, they're people who are followed over time. There was no randomization. You get alcohol, you don't. Or, uh, it's just follow people over time. And so one of the limits with those kinds of studies is that the comparison group, who typically in these studies tend to be abstainers, um, may be abstainers uh, for a reason. Abstainers tend to be people that are in poor health. Now, some studies have looked at lifelong abstainers versus non-lifelong abstainers, and that's been more of a mixed bag in terms of findings. But it, it's, it's still generally true that drinking is associated with good health, and that can be for many reasons. So, but for the abstainers, people can be abstainers because they're ill or they were formerly dependent or heavy drinkers. Um, and the other thing that's difficult in these studies that just follow people over time is that um, 
people can you know, self-select to be drinker or not. And drinkers tend to have better self-rated health than non-drinkers. They tend to have other more positive health markers. They tend to be less obese. They have higher income. They engage in more physical activity. Um, the only negative thing for drinkers is they tend more, le- they more, they are more likely to be smokers than non-drinkers. The two go together often. Um, but in terms of other health markers, they just tend to be a, have healthier um, profile. And, um, of course, with all these studies, we are getting to the point where we can really monitor alcohol consumption more accurately in an easier way. But all of these are really self-reports, so there are some reporting inaccuracies. Others looking at this have found, though, that people will generally be true about drinking or not drinking. What they may not be accurate about is how much they drink. But it's also been found that if you say you drink three drinks a drink, you may, in fact, drink four or five drinks a week, but you're still not going to say you drink one drink. So it's less, less, you report less consumption than you do, but still in the higher ranges. Um, So let's talk about why. Why does alcohol seem to have these positive health benefits? Um, We're still learning about this, but some of the things that have been shown pretty clearly now are um, that alcohol is the most powerful way to raise good cholesterol, or HDL, which can lower your risk for coronary heart disease. It also acts like aspirin to prevent clotting, and that also can lower your risk for heart disease and stroke. It increases insulin sensitivity, uh, reduces, which reduces your risk for diabetes. And it has an estrogen effect, which is good for your bones, not so good for uh, breast cancer risk. But it does increase bone density and can therefore um, help protect you against osteoporosis. And these, are, these have been well studied at this point. Um, one question you may a- ask then is, so say you aren't a drinker and you have a condition that we think alcohol can help, does starting drinking help? The answer is yes. So six observational studies to date have been done that have examined subgroups uh, of people who have increased their alcohol consumption during a period of follow-up. Everyone stayed in this low-risk drinking limit, um, and they consistently observed a 30% lower risk for coronary heart disease Um, among those who took up regular alcohol use compared to those who did not. Um, But the big question has been, well, maybe all these these positive findings are really due to the fact that people who drink, uh, most of the evidence, again, is these these observational studies and not really due to alcohol itself. So to answer this question, there is now an ongoing uh, 8,000-person trial um, across the world Um, called the Moderate Alcohol and Cardiovascular Health Trial. Um, So it's a six-year study, randomized trial, that compares 14 grams of alcohol or a drink daily to abstention on the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and death. So those are the outcomes that have been shown to be positively affected by alcohol consumption in these observational studies. Um, So they're enrolling 7,800 adults age 50 and older who are at above average risk for cardiovascular disease. Remember, this is the group who can most benefit from alcohol consumption based on our observational studies. So we'll have some more um, definitive proof or not of alcohol's beneficial effect on these outcomes in time. So moving to the other side of alcohol um, and its effect on health. So another New Yorker cartoon, um, one guy looking worse for the wear, talking to another guy, and he said, my heart is healthy, my liver is shot to hell. We'll talk about that. So this is a big list of conditions for which alcohol is detrimental or alcohol can cause. Remember that most of these conditions, you have to drink a fair amount for this to occur. So it isn't your lowest drinker, it's your heavy drinker or a binge drinker. Um, so it causes cancer of all these varieties, most of the kind that alcohol comes in contact with um, or increases risk for. Uh, and gastrointestinal conditions, alcohol can cause cirrhosis or pancreatitis. Infections, it's been associated with increased risk for tuberculosis, HIV, and AIDS. Um, other sexually transmitted disease. This is a thought in large part to uh, behaviors that one engages in. Risky behaviors increase if you drink. Um, pneumonia also increased among um, people who drink too much. Cardiovascular disease, so with, while some alcohol is good for your heart, too much isn't. So you can develop high blood pressure if you drink th- three or more drinks um, on average a day. Uh, you can develop um, 
uh, ischemic heart disease at high amounts of alcohol consumption, too. And you can get what we call holiday heart or atrial fibrillation, uh, arrhythmias, irregular heartbeat with alcohol. And you can develop particularly um, bleeding kind of stroke or hemorrhagic stroke with um, large amount of alcohol consumption. This is recent data by the kind of the world-famous alcohol epidemiologist Jurgen Rem. Recent data. These are other conditions for which alcohol is detrimental or causes, so neuropsychiatric disorders. So, um, again, we've talked about low-risk alcohol use protecting against dementia, but high-risk can contribute to it or certainly make it worse. Um, depression has had a long-standing association with alcohol consumption. We're still grappling with chicken or egg, but I think most studies are now saying that really um, alcohol use can, um, can worsen depression and um, uh, being depressed, uh, um, well, alcohol use can worsen depression is mostly what we're thinking. And then you can get seizures from heavy doses of alcohol. It's thought that's due to repeated mini withdrawals from alcohol. If you drink a lot, you eventually lower your seizure threshold and develop a seizure disorder. A pregnancy, of course, is not a good thing to be when you're drinking. And injuries, so especially with um, heavy drinking or episodic heavy drinking, which is many times quantified as more than five drinks per occasion. Um, It's associated with injuries, violence of all types, suicide, uh, elder mistreatment. And then, of course, um, you know, if you have an alcohol use disorder, drinking is is, uh, not something usually you can participate in without negative consequence. So this is um, a data slide looking at alcohol and the risk for breast cancer. So remember, we think the mechanism for this is that alcohol increases um, some of the hormones uh, that contribute to breast cancer, the estrogen. And so you see this linear relationship between alcohol consumption and increased risk for breast cancer, albeit sort of pretty small, but it's a consistent increase. So here's, again, your relative risk of one and then higher is worse. But the relative risk rises pretty slowly, and the, and, and the drinking goes up a lot. So, again, this is less than a drink a day increases your risk from 1 to 1.03 or 4. And then about less than two drinks, it goes from you know, 1 to 1.12. So it's small, but it's, it's definitely there. Um, so there's been some data, though, to suggest that among women who drink alcohol, taking folate can attenuate your risk for breast cancer. So I always tell my women friends who drink alcohol to take a milligram of folate every day. That may reduce your risk for breast cancer. One of the largest risks that we see in older adults is alcohol medication interactions, um, This is um, for three main reasons. So alcohol can raise or lower the level of medication in your body. Um, It depends on the drug. So it can raise, um, well, and how you drink. So it can raise the level (coughs) of medications like sedatives, uh, narcotics, or strong pain medications, and Coumadin or Warfarin type of blood thinner. So if you drink a lot some of the time, so you binge drink, we call it, um, you can raise your blood levels of those substances and cause an uh, exaggerated effect. And, um, and conversely to that, if you're a regular heavy drinker, so you always drink three or four drinks every day, the, the, the liver gets good at metabolizing the drug and alcohol, so you need more drug to achieve the same effect. So you, you can lower the level of medication in your body if you're a regular heavy drinker. So it can be tricky to manage some of these medications if you're drinking in these ways. Um, the biggest reason people have issues with alcohol, though, is that um, use of alcohol can make certain drugs less effective if you drink. Uh, so, for example, you take a medication to treat your blood pressure, but you're drinking four drinks a day. We know drinking that much can raise your blood pressure, so you're kind of taking the drug to counteract the effect of the alcohol. Um, gout can be caused by alcohol consumption. So can ulcer disease, depression, and insomnia. Um, so that's kind of the, one of the big reasons people have potential risk from alcohol consumption. And then alcohol can worsen known side effects of certain medications. So drugs that cause sedation um, can be more sedating if you drink too because it's also a sedating medication. And then alcohol can cause gastrointestinal bleeding. Um, Remember, it has that aspirin-like effect too. So drugs that also cause 
potential increase in gastrointestinal bleeding um, are, are risky with alcohol. Um, now I'm going to talk a bit more on aging and alcohol. You can see two sides of the coin there. So these are data about drinking specifically in older adults. Um, so almost 75% of people reported ever using alcohol. That's still true today. Uh, about 50% reported using alcohol in the previous 12 months. Uh, those are typically called current drinkers. And then in past year drinkers, about two-thirds were drinking in this light category, which is, the, you know, we consider the healthy group. Um, maybe even more would be healthier if you look at some of the data we talked about earlier. Uh, almost a quarter were moderate drinkers, so in this range of um, 4 to 14 for men, 4 to 7 for women. And um, almost 11% were heavy drinkers, um, defined as more than 14 drinks per man and more than 7 for women. So for older adults, drinking has different risks. We've talked about already a little bit. Um, typically, alcohol is a tricky topic because in every paper you read, there's sometimes a different definition of what is heavy drinking, what is high-risk drinking, what is low-risk drinking, what is... So it, it's, it's complicated for that. Um, but, and often unhealthy drinking or at-risk drinking is defined based on exceeding that recommended threshold. But um, alcohol can have different risks in older adults that may make them at increased risk even if they don't exceed that low-risk drinking threshold. Um, so an older adult relevant definition is the use of alcohol that increases risk for harm due to both the amount consumed and concurrent use of alcohol with medications and comorbidities. Um, so you may be drinking um, less than the recommended limits, but you have other things going on that increase your risk for harm. So we, we, we tried to look at this um, idea. It's complicated um, to do this. Most studies looking at alcohol and look at alcohol and. They don't look at alcohol and this, that, and the other thing. Um, but we tried to do this. So we looked at data from two large data sets, um, adults age 60 and older, and we compared the risk of dying between persons who were drinking and either did or did not have comorbid conditions that could be negatively affected by alcohol like you know, depending how much you drank, hypertension, gout, that kind of thing. And we found in this study that among uh, men, mortality or risks of dying were 20% higher among those who were drinking and did have these comorbid conditions compared to people who were drinking and didn't have these comorbid conditions. So just so some data to show that you, 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 it, it isn't just the drinking, it's the drinking plus that, that matters. So to look at this further, this part of the talk gets into more of my personal research. Um, we developed uh, a measure called the, the Comorbidity Alcohol Risk Evaluation Tool to really get at this issue of what is, what is the risk for an older adult. So it's a questionnaire that identifies older persons who may be at risk or unhealthy drinkers. Again, one of the issues with our field is labels, but um, we're moving to unhealthy now. Um, the questionnaire included uh, seven items on medical conditions that could be caused or worsened by alcohol. Uh, symptoms, six of them, that again could be caused or worsened by alcohol. Medications that could interact in a negative way with alcohol, 11 items on that. Alcohol use, we had three items. We asked quantity, frequency, and then what we consider binge or episodic heavy drinking. Uh, we asked about others being concerned about the individual's drinking. This is an item which is a classic item on an alcoholism screening measure. And then driving after drinking, another risk for all age groups. So these are three examples of what we'd consider at-risk or unhealthy drinkers identified by this questionnaire. Um, the first example is a 72-year-old man who drinks three drinks four times a week, and he has high blood pressure, so we know that amount of drinking can raise his blood pressure. He has problems sleeping. Alcohol, we know, can disrupt your REM sleep and cause you to have worse sleep at higher amounts. And he takes medicines for blood pressure and sleep, so we know, again, that could counteract his blood pressure medicine and, and make his um, sleep worse, too. So he's sort of the drugs that he's trying to treat this condition is alcohol's fighting against. Um, the second example is a 68-year-old woman who drinks two drinks daily. She also feels sad or blue and takes ibuprofen, so she has depressive symptoms, and she takes a medication that can cause um, gastrointestinal bleeding. <clears throat> the third is an 84-year-old man. He drinks three drinks daily and sometimes has heartburn, can be worsened by this alcohol consumption, and he takes an ulcer medicine, again, can be worsened by this amount of alcohol consumption. 
So we did a randomized trial. We did two, actually, um, to, to try to get at the question of does identifying and then intervening in regard to unhealthy alcohol use help reduce the prevalence of unhealthy alcohol use. So for both of these studies, we identified what we called at-risk drinkers who were 55 and older. Um, by this instrument, we developed the carrot, and we randomized them to controller intervention groups. <clears throat> so that was um, the control group just got a booklet called Healthy Living As You Age, which, which discussed healthy habits like seatbelt use, exercise, and alcohol consumption. The intervention group got a booklet called Healthy Drinking As You Age, which focused entirely on drinking um, and safe limits and medication, alcohol interactions, medication disease interactions. They also got what we called a personalized risk report. So they were told, based on their responses to this carrot measure, we said, Mrs. Jones, you may be an at-risk drinker because you report drinking two drinks every day and also taking a sleeping medicine. This can increase your risk for you know, excessive sedation and falls. Um, they also got brief physician advice, so this occurred in the context of a primary care visit, so the physicians were educated about these risks and asked to counsel their patients. And um, they were, this study also included up to three health educator phone calls because we found that people had trouble maybe grasping the entire concept during the office visit where a lot of stuff's going on, so we did follow-up calls with the health educator to help make sure people understood the risks. And then we had follow-up periods that, um, depending on the study, three, and, three or six months and then 12 months. And then we looked at some of our outcomes, um, and I'll share those next. So, um, so the baseline categories of risk for both studies are listed here. And um, the, um, this is study one, healthy living. This is study two, project share. So this just tells you that the biggest... the, the most common risk was alcohol use with medication. So 73% of people in the Healthy Living As You Age study um, were identified as at risk because of alcohol use with medications, and 61% of those in the Project Share study were identified as at risk because of this. So down the line, you see the, the, the number, this is least, less, less common risk going down the line. So again, number two is alcohol use with symptoms. Number three is alcohol use with comorbid conditions. Um, number four is just drinking too much. The, you exceed the recommended drinking limits. Um, binge drinking, that's how we defined it, um, was also pretty common. Driving and drinking, common, 24% of the first study, 32% of the second. Um, and then others being concerned about the drinking, that's the classic alcoholism measure. That was the lowest. We'd expected that. So we, we were aiming in this, um, with this care to identify a different type of person than the um, classic alcoholism screening measures were, um, and we did. So the most common um, individual risk people had were listed here. <clears throat> and so um, note that there were seven different categories of risk. So that prior slide... Um, that illustrate that these are these are seven different groups one two three going down, and then we found in this study that on average people had three of these risks. So it wasn't just a single risk; they had three of them. And so, um, but the most common comorbidities they reported were hypertension followed by depression. So this is the number and the percentage. So thirty one percent, twelve percent. Problem sleeping was very common. We we can see this a lot in older adult population anyhow, um, but. Problems sleeping, gastrointestinal symptoms, memory problems, commonly reported. Medicines used, um, blood pressure meds, ulcer medicines, ibuprofen-type medicines, and then aspirin-type medicines were also pretty commonly used. Um, so at baseline, everyone in this, both of these studies were considered at-risk drinkers, so 100%. And so when we looked at three-month, six-month data, these are two different studies, and then 12-month data, we see that um, if you start at 100, about a reduction in, in the percentage of people who are at risk was almost 40% in, um, well, the, it's 40% in the, um, so, oh, sorry, the two colored bars. This is the intervention arm that got the whole thing with education and the personalized risk report, doctor advice. And the control arm got a booklet, health, health, general health education booklet. So we saw that even in the general health education booklet, there was a 40% reduction in risk. So now 61% are at risk compared to 100 at the, at the three-month time period, or six months still had a reduction. But compared to the um, intervention group, the intervention group had even more reduction in risk. So now only 50% are at risk, 
Only 60% are at risk. Again, this, this was a difference at these time frames. When we look at 12 months out, um, we see that there is um, these risks. So both this group kind of climbs a little. This group stays stable. This is, again, the same study group, these two. Um, but the risk rose a little bit, and the, um, in the, intervent, in the control arm stayed sort of static, too. But we no longer saw any statistically significant risk difference in this one study and the other we still did. It was a bigger sample size, which helps. So um, the message we, want, we portrayed in the papers we wrote is that um, risks really drop dramatically and stay pretty much lower over time um, uh, compared to the uh, control arm. But everyone reduces somewhat, which we've seen in a lot of studies. They call it regression to the mean. They call it a variety of things. People just getting any information might change. And then we looked at just the pure amount of drinking. So a baseline in these studies, people were drinking um, about 15 drinks a week. So that exceeds the recommended drinking limits for men and certainly for women. Um, in in the both studies, 15 compared to 13 to 14. And then over time, again, we see this reduction in amount of drinking. Um, again, in, contr- intervention versus control, we saw a bigger reduction in the amount of drinking in the um, intervention arm in both of these studies. And we see it also at the 12-month period. There was a statistically significant difference. I'm not sure if I would say difference between nine drinks and 11 drinks is giant, but it's, it's a difference. Um, same for here. So we saw um, reductions in amount of drinking over time. All right, so... So, um, in conclusion, um, alcohol has benefits or risks depending on the amount and frequency of alcohol use. And I want to also make clear, it really doesn't matter what type of alcohol you drink. It's not just red wine that's the good stuff. It's any kind of alcohol. Um, uh, Other factors, though, including age, gender, family history of having an alcohol problem, um, comorbid conditions and medications can affect your risk-benefit ratio. Um, Only... Um, now there's one randomized trial that's being done to prove or disprove some of alcohol's apparent benefits. Um, it is still very controversial to recommend alcohol use. It's definitely not done. Um, I think the major concern is that if you told someone who was a non-drinker to start drinking, they could have unintended consequences from drinking. Um, so older adult, older at-risk drinkers have multiple risks, most because of the combined use of medication, alcohol, or use of alcohol in the presence of a comorbid condition. Um, data suggests that advice to reduce alcohol consumption, advice can reduce alcohol consumption and unhealthy drinking in older populations, as it has been seen in younger populations. And then more work needs to be done in venues other than primary care, and using other means besides, you know, advice. Uh, or in-person advice to address unhealthy alcohol and other substance use in older adults. And I will finish with another slide, cartoon, my husband's favorite character. Um, So if you drink, drink responsibly. So the homer on this side is drinking his one beer. He's nicely dressed, looks good. And the homer on this side is drinking, what, four cans of Duff plus a bottle of something. So too much drinking, and he's not looking good. So, thank you very much. All right. Anyone have questions? Yes. Yeah, I, I wonder if there's any attention paid to the genetics of the individual. Uh, certain populations, you, you mentioned, you know, doctors are reluctant. Uh, I know personally very, very well an individual who comes from a population that is considered to be had problems with alcohol, who never drank until a physician told her to take a drink and relax. Ten years later, she had died of cirrhosis. She became terribly addicted. But again, there are populations that may, for one reason or another, react differently to the alcohol. Has any study been done about that? Well, there's definitely been studies done by Mark Shuckett, who's on this campus. He's done a lot on the genetics of alcoholism. He has a study called the Koga study. And there is definitely a genetic component to alcoholism. It's still not well understood, I would say. We do know that if you're a son of an alcoholic, you have a 50% risk for being an alcoholic. So women, it's less. Um, But in terms of the genetic predisposition to alcoholism, yes, it's definitely 
true. So in the case you're describing, you said that you had a friend who um, was a non-drinker. Her physician recommended a drink of alcohol to relax, and then she became addicted and died from complications of alcohol consumption. The, the question was, were uh, there were any distinctions made between the type of high blood pressure medication used that may have more or less interaction with alcohol? So the issue with the alcohol interaction with antihypertensives, for the most part, is really just that we use antihypertensives to lower blood pressure, and depending on how much you drink, you're counteracting that. So it isn't necessarily the type of medication that matters. It's just that you take this. It's sort of an indicator that you have hypertension and you're you're counteracting that effect of the antihypertensive. Some blood pressure medicines, that being said, do uh, are associated with more like lowering the blood pressure more rapidly than others, and like um, alpha blockers like clonidine. And so alcohol more may also have that. It can also help. It'll also may cause lowering of blood pressure in those ones that do it more dramatically anyway. So that can have a direct negative effect. We did not look at that specifically. Sir, you had a question? So the question is, is there any evidence that there's a thing called the French paradox, and that is that red wine is better, red wine is associated with positive health, and is it better than white wine? So um, the answer is no. It's really any kind of alcohol is helpful, um, and it's because of the biologic basis. They all raise HDL, act like aspirin to thin out the blood, um, increase insulin sensitivity. Question, I guess you. Good question. What's the the question was? Is there any? What do we know about the reversibility of the damage that alcohol can do to you if you're a heavy drinker? Then stop. Does that sort of reverse the effects over time of the damage you've had? I am not sure of that question. I think we, given, I know pretty much about this topic. I think we just don't know enough. I know in tobacco, you say after five years you reduce your risk to zero for certain things. Others it takes longer. I don't think we have that answer for alcohol. Did you, sir, you got a question? So, when you're, so the question was, um, we hear about um, longevity in the blue zones, one of which is Loma Linda, California, an area where there are a lot of um, Adventists who don't drink at all and are vegetarian too, I believe, and don't smoke. And um, the question was, what exactly? Sorry, I forget that word. Okay. Um, did the, did the, does this finding, uh, is it uh, similar to other data we see? It, it's an interesting topic. I mean, we, so the, one of the controversies in this area of alcohol consumption and benefit is that um, alcohol is, in most, at least in many U.S. societies, a marker for social health, too. You're getting out there. You're healthy enough to drink. Um, but in societies like Adventist population, it just is not part of their culture or their beliefs to do that. So they are social and exercise and do all positive health behaviors and don't drink. And um, so I think both could be true. I mean, alcohol is only part of the equation for this. I mean, I would say, you know, my husband has low HDL, but you would he would never drink. He just hates it. So he uses other means to lower his HDL and improve his risk for cardiovascular disease. So I think it's a complicated thing, this alcohol and health thing. And this, this trial will help us understand it more. But, it, it, it's in, you know, the risk reduction, they say, is on the average of 30% for heart disease. And the people in this world say that it's a true reduction, but it may be more like 15% risk. It may lower it some, but not as much as they're seeing in these, in these observational studies. We'll learn more with the trial. Yes, Alberto? Yeah. So is your question, so the question I think is that um, now that marijuana is legalized, will there be more of a concern with interaction of alcohol and marijuana or just marijuana use in this population, older adults? Yeah, so it's, it's a thing. Um, so there's more and more now interest in examining the effect of marijuana on older adults since it now is legal, and we're seeing it more and more and more used for pain control, for which it's been shown to be very effective. Um, so, you know, I came here recently from UCLA, and there I had not almost a single patient on marijuana. And here I'm seeing so many. And I'm like, is it, is it San Diego? Is it just because the time changed? Yeah, times have changed? I, I don't know. I, it's going to be a thing to be studied because marijuana definitely has brain effects, you know. So, again, if you're older, if you're frail, you're going to be at risk. But pain, it really seems to be a helpful thing. So I think it's tricky because we also, as physician, I can tell you, I, I, we send them to special people for marijuana. It's not like I can do it. Um, I think we'll become 
better at it now that it's legal and probably people will be wanting to figure out, can I get it from my regular doctors, you know, opposed to having to go somewhere else. So it's risky, I think, but we don't know enough. Yeah. So um, uh, the question is, do we see more sort of some of the stuff you see with the younger people in risky behaviors, that is STDs and, um, and uh, alcohol or excessive alcohol consumption uh, in, in retiring Mint communities compared to non-retirement communities. Um, this hasn't been well studied at all, um, but there's been some data to suggest that since alcohol is more of, it's like going back to college in some ways at these places, right? You're, you, you have a group of people that hang together, the friend groups, and alcohol is part of the daily life there, right? And you tend to be in reasonable <laughs> condition, but when you're 80, you're still, we call it the house of cards. You can be fine and then not fine um, rapidly. So it is a riskier thing. We do see that there is more, again, these small database, but yes, there is more drinking there than in other places, and people can be injured because of the alcohol. Um, STDs, there is some concern that there is an increase in STDs as well as um, new diagnosis of HIV in um, some of the populations that, that are engaging in other risky behaviors and say, ah, I'm not going to get pregnant, what's the risk? And so there is some suggestion that's happening. We don't know enough yet. Yeah. So the question is calories and alcohol. So for fat is nine uh, calories per, I can't remember the bottom, but nine calories, I'm going to say per dose. Alcohol, seven, and carbohydrates, four. And so it's less than fat, more than carbohydrate. A typical glass of wine is about um, 120 calories. Yeah. So again, if you're diabetic, margarita may not be the best alcohol for you to, you know, drink for you to consume. But tequila alone, okay. So the question is, can alcohol really? Um, can people who drink alcohol then not eat as well, um, or a sufficient amount? And yes, the, I've certainly seen that. It's interesting for some people like me. Alcohol, I call it my gateway drug to uninhibited eating. Um, so for me, I drink, eat more. Um, for others, yes, I see they don't eat as much or they prefer to drink alcohol than, than eat or can cut their appetite. But many, you know, I think traditionally alcohol has been thought to be something that is a nice food accompany. It can help improve appetite. Um, it, again, it's all about sort of how much you're drinking. Um, the, the, yeah. So um, the question is for this study I mentioned last, the randomized controlled trial over uh, several countries and 7,800 people, will there be interim time points? I, I'm pretty much guaranteed there will be. I don't know that for a fact, but we usually see interim time point data um, being um, provided. And there's always usually stopping points. So if they see that one arm does so much better or so much worse than the other arm, they will stop the trial um, saying, okay, we know the answer enough that it's either good or bad or, yeah. Thank you for your questions. They're excellent. Thank you for having me tonight. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.